In the tales of the martyrdom of Stephen and the conversion of Paul, Luke brilliantly demonstrates the importance of listening to a modern prophet and the power of Christ to transform us all the way to our core. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, the podcast in which every week we discuss the Come Follow Me lessons of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week's lesson is the New Testament lesson number 27, What Wilt Thou Have Me to Do? Covering Acts chapter 6 through 9. As always, should you care to contact the show, email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. You may ask a question about a lesson that's already passed, uh, a lesson coming up in the future, And you can tell me something that is intended for broadcast, as many people do, or also something, private message, um, just about your feelings about the show, as also many people do. Uh, And as always, we appreciate your five-star reviews on iTunes and on Facebook and your shares on Facebook. They help us to find more listeners. We're always trying to find more people to hear our lessons, uh, and we do this without remuneration of any kind, so... Um, it's just to bring to pass the understanding of Christ and the scriptures. So my mission is to help people not only understand what happened in the scriptures, but understand the background, um, basically give you some context so that you can put yourself in the position of somebody reading these scriptures in the era for which it was written. So in the case of the New Testament, one of the early Christian followers uh, of, of the apostles reading the, the testimony of Paul in the book of Acts what would they have understood and thought, and without having explained to them, what what context would they have received it in? This is my goal. So I, I use linguistic, historical, cultural, and literary analysis in order to draw my own conclusions, and and these conclusions are my own, uh, unless unless I tell you otherwise. So let's begin with Acts chapter six, and uh, if you. If you've been paying attention, the apostles since uh, chapter 2 of Acts have been looking over the finances, and they've been verifying that the the poor are taken care of by all of the rich people donating everything they have. Well, everybody brings everything they have. And at this point, the apostles are about maxed out on what they can do temporally for everyone, and they in trying to do their missionary work, they're finding they don't have time to take care of the temporal needs of people. And so they they appoint seven people, and these seven people are named. The first one is a man named Stephen. And the, the important thing seems to be that they're sober people and that they are led by the Holy Spirit, so that they're subject to the will of God, they're humble, etc. And uh, nowadays, many people liken these to the seven presidents of 70 uh, but I, I would say they're closely, closer to what we would call today the presiding bishopric. They're also great, in the case of Stephen, we learned great missionaries and great prophets. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it even says, Stephen does great miracles and wonders among them. So we know that not only are they uh, taking care humbly and we we hope and we suppose, honestly, the temporal needs of the people. But also, in the, in the case of Stephen, he's performing missionary work, bearing powerful testimony of Jesus, and performing miracles. And this has the same effect that it has had, 
that we've seen since the time of Jesus, since Jesus was alive. Jesus was persecuted the priests. They decided to kill him because of the miracles that he was doing and the fact that those miracles were making people decide they liked Jesus more than they liked the Jewish leaders, more than they liked the way that they were interpreting the law and the scriptures. All of the scribes, for example, what are called lawyers in the Gospels, they enjoyed Jesus' interpretation of the scriptures more than they enjoyed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And eventually, and they, and they also weren't willing to stay out of the public eye, and they went to the temple. They chose the, the center, the headquarters of the Jewish leaders to make their case, and so therefore they could not be ignored. One way or the other, the Jewish leaders had to deal with them. They either had to be hum- humble themselves and allow them freedom to teach what they wanted, or they, they had to kill them. There were, those were the only two choices because they could not stop them any other way. And unfortunately, they chose to react violently. So in the case of Stephen, uh, the, the miracles that he did, it has the same, you remember Christ early in his ministry, he, was, he told the people for whom he did miracles, he said, don't noise this about because my time has not yet come. In the case of Stephen, he doesn't say that. So he, he just immediately does public miracles in Jerusalem where the Jewish leaders are, and, and they're so incensed by this that they immediately take, well, the first thing they do is they try to oppose him the way that uh, they tried to oppose Jesus. So I'm, I'm drawing certain parallels between the life of Stephen and the life of Jesus because uh, that is what Luke intends. This is, this is very obviously uh, one of the devices of Luke, and I'll explain why. As I, as I mentioned, one of the main reasons, as I mentioned in the introduction, is Luke is trying to show us that it's important to listen to the modern prophet, the current prophet, and those who are hearing the, the voice of the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is so important to these early saints. It is, it is new to them, and it's like they have been born, their eyes are open for the first time. And so somebody who is truly led by the Holy Spirit to them is a precious thing. And the prophet being the most precious, and they're saying when, you, when somebody is performing these works and saying the words of God, it is of utmost importance to hear his voice. So that's, that's Stephen. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, Cyrenians, etc. There, there are there's the synagogue of all the foreign Jews who may come to visit, and they were not able to resist the. Or, well, there arose certain of the synagogue disputing with Stephen, and then in verse ten, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So just as Jesus Christ had done. Stephen is able to confound them in all of their words. Every time they dispute with him, his understanding of the scriptures and his guidance by the Spirit and possibly his discernment, as we'll see later, Peter has this discernment to see into the minds of people. And as we saw in last week's lesson, and Stephen may have this as well, they cannot withstand him. And so then in verse 11, it says, they suborned men. Now, if you're you're familiar with that word, today in modern jurisprudence, a crime that a lawyer might commit is to suborn perjury. If you're a lawyer, you can't ask a question of any witness if you are aware that that witness is going to lie on the stand. You can lose your your law license for that, for suborning perjury. So it means that influencing someone to lie in court. Then they suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And in verse 13, 
they set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now this uh, is also the charge that they arrested Jesus for. They said, he, he said that he would destroy the temple in three days, build it up again, right? So in, in the trial of Jesus, one of the problems that they had was that their false witnesses against Jesus couldn't quite agree on what had been said by Jesus, and they were, they were having a hard time making their case of blasphemy against Jesus. Here, here we are with Stephen, who has been imprisoned and brought to trial for his life for the same reason, for blasphemy. And they're having the same problem in this trial. Now, once again, this trial is illegal. You cannot try someone for a capital crime in, in this particular time in, because the Jews, the Sanhedrin, this council that he's in front of, some, some translations don't have this as the council of the Sanhedrin. They believe that, uh, as in verse 9, it says this other synagogue, this synagogue of foreigners is the one trying him. But a lot of translations, in, where, where it says council, they actually substitute the word Sanhedrin. So many scholars believe this was the same body that had tried Jesus, except for the fact that in Jesus's trial, it was mostly the Sadducees, as, as I personally believe, that were sitting in that trial. And many of the people who, and some of those who were sympathetic to Jesus, were not present because this was a controversial trial. In this case, it seems like uh, it's probably happening during the daytime, and it's not as controversial. Uh, it doesn't appear to be held in secret. But whichever the case is there, both in the trial of Jesus and in the trial of Stephen, it's illegal for the Sanhedrin to hold a capital case, period. They don't have the authority to condemn someone to die, nor to execute them. So we're on to ch- Acts chapter 7 now. The trial begins, and um, the high priest just asks Stephen, are these things so? Now, unlike Jesus, Stephen is perfectly willing to give them enough rope to hang him, right? He's going to say whatever he has to say. He's going to say all the words that the Spirit of God influences him and puts into his mouth, as Jesus told him to do, uh, not directly, but through the apostles. He said, when, when you're brought up on trial, when you're brought up in front of kings and rulers, it will be given you in the very hour what you should say. So Stephen begins to speak, and this is such a powerful address that he gives them. He gives them the spiritual history of Israel from the perspective of one of the prophets. From our perspective, we look back and we see that on one side of the, of the, the people of God or the followers of God or the, um, the scriptures, you might say, this, this spiritual history of a people that has been worshiping Jehovah for centuries and for millennia, on one side are the prophets and those who are humble and those who provide what is called by the prophets justice and righteousness, right? The two priorities that they have for God's people, that they'll, that they'll worship God and worship him only, and then they'll give justice to each other. So this righteousness is also a, a way of saying right relationships between each other and between you and God. So if these people would only provide justice and righteousness, God would have no quarrel with them. But on the one hand, it's the prophets telling them they need to do this, and on the other hand, it's the people saying they won't do it. So st- this is the context in which Stephen provides the history, and he begins with Abraham, and he says, our father Abraham, right? This is where Jews begin- believe that their history began, because the covenant that makes them special, that sets them apart, was originally made to Abraham, and part of that covenant was, through your seed, 
Through the seed of this people, you'll be a light unto the Gentiles. Through your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And they believed that they would spread the, the idea that God was one, that God was righteous, that God wanted them to do the right thing. So this what, what we know today as ethical monotheism, that, would, that was to be spread by the children of Abraham. And this light they would provide un, unto the Gentiles would, would bless all the nations of the earth. One thing they didn't quite understand at that point was that through Abraham's seed also meant through the Messiah, which was destined to come through his line. But they later did come to understand that. And Stephen makes that plain, and all of the members of the council knew that as well. He says, so he gives the history, and uh, he says, he, he tells about what happened to Abraham and how Abraham was willing to listen to God. And then he talks about Joseph. And the prophet Joseph, and he contrasts Joseph with his brothers, right? He says the patriarchs, all the, all the 12 children of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. These patriarchs, 11 of them were on one side, and Joseph was on the other side. 11 of them were willing to kill him, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. So it talks about how Joseph was on one side, the side of righteousness, willing to testify and, and suffer and be obedient and then he was the means of salvation. And on the other side were the 11 people who had to constantly repent, and they had to be chastised for their disobedience. So then the, the entire nation, the Israelites, they end up in Egypt, and they're mistreated by the Egyptians, and then Moses comes along, and he, have, he has the same problem. In fact, in the case of Moses, it happens twice. When Moses is called a god out in the wilderness, he comes back to the Jews, and he says, I'm going to get you out of here. And they say, who made you a judge? Over us. So, on the one hand, on the one side is the prophet that God has called, and on the other side are these disobedient, recalcitrant Israelites who are saying, "We don't, we don't choose you. Where did, where did you come from? Why should you be in charge of us?" And Moses gets them out. Obviously, we know the the story. And if you care to read Stephen's version of it, it's obviously much abridged. Then you can read that in the book of Acts, chapter seven. But eventually he leads them away. The next thing Stephen talks about is they're in the, in the wilderness of Sinai, and Moses has revealed to them the Mosaic Covenant, and they say, we don't choose to be obedient unto your God, right? We, we're, while you're up there talking to God on Mount Sinai, we're going to have your brother make us a golden calf. So th- there is their rebelling to Moses' face when they say, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, we don't choose to be obedient to your God. And then there is also the fact, and, and this is poetry. Um, if you read this, this is, uh, in, case, in case you haven't been with me very long, I occasionally point out that you should visit BibleHub.com. And in this address by Stephen, in some of the translations on BibleHub, if you, if you look up this verse, Acts chapter 7, when he's talking about the words that the Israelites say to Moses, then uh, the, the lines are indented to show you that this is actually Hebrew poetry, that, or, or what Stephen is saying is in the style of Hebrew pro- poetry, and he's quoting the book of Exodus, which is also, in this particular case, written poetically. Now, it's, it's sort of a judgment call as to when uh, these ancient Hebrew writings are poetic and when they're not, because they don't, they don't, they're not poet, they're not Poems in the in the sense that we would think they are having rhyme and meter. Um, nevertheless, there are certain aspects of their 
uh, literary compositions that mark them as poetry. So I'm in this case, I'm reading from the New International Version, and I'm seeing that uh, when in verse 35, Acts 7:35, this Moses whom they refused, saying, "Who made thee a ruler and a judge?" The same did God send to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. That's what happened in Egypt, and then. Later on, uh, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness, in verse 39, to whom our fathers would, would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So those are poetic lines that Stephen delivers when he's talking about the ways in which they oppose themselves to God's prophet. Well, he talks then about the tabernacle that Moses constructed, the tent, the dwelling place of God, in the, where God would camp and condescend to live with Israel, and then the shrines, the other tents that they carried around for Molech and the other evil gods that they wanted to worship, their idolatrous gods. And so, again, it, in even their dwelling places and even their tents, their makeshift shelters that they had in the wilderness, the Israelites are opposed to the tabernacle of God. So there's this contrast throughout the story of Stephen, and there's a reason why Luke relates this entire story. Otherwise, he would just say, he would have just summarized it. He would have said, Stephen talked about the ways in which God had blessed his people. But instead, Luke tries to give a very accurate depiction of everything that Stephen said. Incidentally, we'll talk later about where Luke got all this information, right? We know from uh, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter one, we know that Luke tried to do his best to talk to eyewitnesses. And who was Luke's eyewitness? We'll find out later on in today's episode. So uh, Luke is, now he's talking about the Israelites in the Exodus, and then he talks about how they come into the promised land. And eventually that David wants to build God a, a house, a temple, a permanent tabernacle. And this is more poetry. Um, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah now. He says, Solomon built him a house in verse 47. So Stephen ends his little tirade, his account, in verses 48 and 49. The reaction, he says, he quotes from the book of Isaiah here, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, prophet Isaiah. This is from, uh, actually from Isaiah chapter 66. Um, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? In other words, hath not my hand made all these things? In other words, you're not building me anything. You can build a house, but if you want to come closer to me, build a house for yourselves. And I'll be and, and if you do it right, and if you follow my commandments, then I will be pleased to inhabit it. But you're not building me anything. I've created all the earth. Every, the earth is my footstool, the entire earth. So you're building something so that you can come closer to me and enjoy my presence. This is a blessing for you and not for me. Um, and that's a, that's a crucial distinction, right? It, it's our attitude of whether we're profitable servants or unprofitable. Are we doing something for God that he couldn't do for himself? Or are we trying the best we can to make use of what he's given us without expecting any return or without expecting a return more than he's given us? And this quotation uh, is from Isaiah 66, Verse 1, which immediately follows the end of Isaiah 65, as I've mentioned many times, these chapter divisions are sometimes a modern innovation. 
And so the end at the end of Isaiah 65, Isaiah is talking about, he's quoting the Lord as talking about the, the time at which the lamb will lay down with the lion. They shall not hurt or they, they shall not do any harm in all my holy mountain. So God is describing the entire place of Zion as his holy mountain, his temple. And then you're trying to build a house to me. I've already made the earth my footstool. There will come a day when the entire earth will be my temple. And if you want to dwell near me, if you want to dwell on earth at all, you're going to have to be worthy to come into my temple. So this is, um, and Isaiah 66, by the way, and I, and I do believe many of these men would have known this, is the chapter in which Isaiah is talking about the fact that foreigners are going to eventually receive a place of inheritance with all of the Israelites. And so, in other words, in that day, it won't matter. Stephen is now talking about a time in which it won't matter. Whether you're a child of Abraham or not, you will all receive the blessing. So the, the first thing that Stephen does is point out that through Abraham's seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he's, where he's ended up is all of the nations of the earth are blessed. This is, this is sort of the logical progression of what Stephen is discussing. Now, it's very crucial, we understand, Stephen has put the Israelites in general on one side of a divide and the prophets on the other side. The prophets are constantly invoking God and admonishing them to repent and to return to justice and righteousness. And on the other side, the people are constantly rebelling and rejecting and persecuting the prophets. And Stephen finishes that by saying this directly. So at the, uh, in verse 51, Stephen says, ye stiff-necked. Now, we're going to come back to each of these claims that Stephen makes. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised, in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? As, and they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. So Stephen comes full circle by lumping in Jesus Christ, the just one, now that now it's his testimony that Jesus Christ is this Messiah that has been prophesied since the days of old, and the people have always persecuted each prophet, and now they are following in one tradition, while Christ followed in another tradition. Who have received, and uh, we're continuing his words in verse 53, who have received the law by the disp- disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, this vision of Stephen is in the Old Testament tradition of many prophets. At this moment, Stephen has what is known in scholar scholarly circles as a throne theophany. And one of the most notable examples of this is Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says, I was called into the temple and I saw God sitting on his throne above the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, and cherubim and seraphim were surrounding him flying, saying, holy, holy, holy. In other words, glory to God in the highest, holiness to God in the highest. And he's describing how unworthy he felt in that moment. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, saw the throne of God, it had been removed from the temple in Jerusalem and was now approaching the, the, 
exiled Jews in Babylon, and Ezekiel the prophet was witness to this. And Jeremiah uh, had a throne theophany, um, but other prophets also had their theophanies. Abraham, obviously, Moses had several that we have records of. And Daniel saw the throne of God. He, he saw the same thing. Now, this, this vision of Stephen is an explicit parallel to the, to the theophany of Daniel, because Daniel has a dream in which he sees the Ancient of Days, and beside him, the Son of Man, which is Christ's most, most often self-applied title. So and, and Christ was making reference, whenever he called himself the Son of Man, he was making reference to Daniel chapter 7. And the point of that reference was the government's, the, that, that is a chapter in which beasts rise up and trample everything, and they're later called the kings of the earth. So governments of men are evil, and eventually God will have to reign, and the Son of Man will have judgment, who is on the right hand of God will have judgment placed into his hand, and he will rule forever and ever. Whenever he calls himself the Son of Man, uh, he's calling forth all of these ideas immediately. And so Stephen does that by, by, ha- by, call- by saying, not only am I seeing God on his throne, but I'm seeing the Son of Man at the right hand. I'm seeing this time in which the beasts, the, these wicked kings of the earth, will no longer be ruling. So by implication, he's saying, I am now in a time when these wicked kings of the earth are ruling. The beasts are trampling. They're about to trample me. Incidentally, this uh, Jesus Christ made a similar pronouncement to Caiaphas when Caiaphas uh, asked Jesus a question in the, in the, I believe it was Mark chapter 15, Jesus said, uh, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God coming in the cloud, right? Um, or he may have just said coming in the cloud. So Jesus made explicit reference as Stephen did, in his trial before the Sanhedrin to Daniel chapter 7. And the fact, and, and by doing so, he was placing these men who were illegally trying him, he was classifying them as the beasts that Daniel had described. So let's look at the claims that Stephen has made. Number one, you're stiff-necked, you are uncircumcised of heart and of ears, you always resist the Holy Ghost. And so these are important uh, and, and as your fathers did, so do ye. So you follow in the tradition of the wicked Israelites since the beginning of the, of the Hebrew scriptures. So let's examine each of these claims, right? The uncircumcised of heart. So circumcision was a token of the Abrahamic covenant. And what Stephen is saying is, you are not followers of Abraham on the inside. You are not a light unto the people. Through your seed, the, the nations of the earth will not be blessed. You will not receive the blessings of Abraham, including the land, this holy land, will be taken away from you. He's attacking all of these things as he says, as he says, you're uncircumcised of heart. You're uncircumcised of ear, meaning you're not willing to hear the, the word of the Lord. You're in the tradition of wicked Israelites. You are resisting the spirit. And as your fathers did, so do ye. Now, what happens when he, when he, when he mentions this vision, then they immediately, it says uh, in verse 57, right after he describes his vision, then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So this is our first 
introduction to Saul, someone who is, uh, as, as, as he self-describes many chapters later, very zealous in defending his faith, his original Jewish faith, from the pollution, as he sees it, of Christianity. Now, so there, we know that they're uncircumcised of heart because they're willing to ignore their own laws, their own traditions. The Sanhedrin had many strictures, many rules put up around having a capital trial. And the, the point of these rules was they knew that the tendency would be, if they have the power of life and death in their hands, the tendency would be to overuse it. And so they had placed all of these restraints around their ability to inflict the death penalty so that they would not abuse that power ever. In addition, this power was not granted to them under Roman law. This was, a, this was what we would call today a lynch mob. They were angry with Stephen, and therefore they convened their own authority, which did not have legal authority. Uh, and they, uh, they also ignored the laws that had been set up by their own uh, traditions over the, over the years, over the centuries, around the, the imposition of the death penalty. So that, that shows that they were uncircumcised of heart. Immediately after he says, talks about this vision, and in fact, he has given this pronouncement. He has talked about the unrighteousness and the injustice of Israel, as did all of the prophets, and then he's described his vision of God on his throne, as did many of the prophets and all of the most powerful ones. So Stephen now establishes himself in the same tradition that all the ancient Old Testament prophets were in, and that he also put Jesus at the culmination of that, and then by his pronouncement that he sees God and the Son of Man on his right hand, Stephen places himself at the end of this train. And then they immediately stop their ears. So they're uncircumcised of heart. Now they're uncircumcised of ear. They're not willing to hear the, ear, the word of the Lord. And then they follow the traditions of their fathers as he said he will. Now there's one more uh, pronouncement that Stephen made that you will resist the Holy Ghost. Oh, and, and then right after he says that, uh, we're introduced to this character named Saul. So we'll talk about how Saul is resisting the Holy Ghost. Um, but it's so fascinating, and Luke does such a masterful job of, of, I mean, the irony here is so thick you could cut it with a knife that Stephen is talking about exactly what they're doing, and then they do those exact things. They, they commit those exact sins that Stephen accuses them of and prove him right in every respect and consider themselves to be right and Stephen to be wrong. So it's so fascinating, and it's so condemning. This is like uh, Luke has been reconvening the trial of Stephen, and now Stephen is found innocent. And it's the, and it's the council itself that is condemned and convicted in, in the trial of Luke and in the court of public of opinion, in the court of Christian opinion that Luke has caused to exist by writing the book of Acts. So... Uh, Acts chapter six and seven, so brilliantly done, and um, and it's not done yet, right? This is just the beginning of what Luke intends for us to learn. So next in chapter eight, we have a brief interlude, and this is the story of Philip. Now, if you remember who the Samaritans are, Samaria was this place where it, it used to be the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Assyrians carried that entire kingdom away a century before the Babylonians carried the southern kingdom away. 
And the Assyrians, being far more cruel than the Babylonians, they transplanted the children of Israel and brought in a bunch of foreigners. And so the people who were left in the land, they combined with these, they mixed with these foreigners, and they created a hybrid faith. They wanted, it was an approximation of the worship of Jehovah. It was an approximation of Judaism. But those in Judea, and especially those who lived in Jerusalem and who controlled the temple, they did not consider, they considered the Samaritans to be apostates. And so when they returned from exile in Babylon, they didn't accept the help of the Samaritans in reconstructing the temple. And so there was this centuries-long enmity and rivalry between them. But Philip finds, and if you remember, Jesus met a Samaritan woman at the well. She was surprised he would even talk to her. And Philip does a similar thing to Jesus. He shows up at this well, and he's baptizing and healing them and casting out devils, and they're all being converted. Um, So the children, Jesus said, first take this to the children of Israel and then to all the world. So the Samaritans are enough children of Israel that the, the apostles consider this fertile ground for their preaching. And so... Philip is having great success there. And then he meets a man named Simon. And Simon is, as it says, he, he considers, everybody considers him to be a great one. Um, and he is some sort of either charlatan or someone who actually performs miracles uh, or, or miraculous works by the power of Satan. We're not led to know which is which. Um, and, and perhaps to the people of that day, it didn't mean it didn't make any difference. They were superstitious, superstitious enough that if someone made the claim of having a magical ability, that uh, they believed it and they considered that you know he he had the power that he claimed to have. Well, Philip makes a convert of this Simon and he's baptized. And then Peter and John hear about Philip's success, how many people he's been baptizing, and they arrive and they begin to, up until this point, Philip hasn't, for whatever reason, maybe he didn't have the keys, uh, but he hasn't been giving anyone the gift of the Holy Ghost. So, so Peter and John begin to put their, lay their hands on people and give them the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here we have this exchange between this new Simon and then Peter and John. Simon, uh, incidentally, is often called Simon Magus, and he's a Samaritan. And so he says to Peter and John, look, I'm, I'm going to offer you a lot of money. I want you guys to give me the power that whoever I put my hands on will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so if you, if you don't quite understand what's going on, it seems a little bit harsh what Peter replies with. He says, you're in the gall of bitterness. You are, the mouth, the, the mouth of hell basically is opening up to swallow you up. And you, you don't have the right attitude towards God. But understand, this man had been, so I'm, I'm going to give you a little context on this. This man had been making his living by convincing everyone that he had power. And now he sees people who have actual power. I mean, Philip has totally supplanted him as the, as the miracle worker of the area because he's actually healing people. He's bringing them not only to physical healing, but spiritual healing and peace through the power of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. And Simon he wants to be part of it. First of all, it says he's converted and baptized, but he still wants to be important. And so whatever conversion happened, there, and there may have been some, obviously he's a believer, and we'll find out in a minute uh, that he does fear God, but he still wants to be more important than his brethren. So what is the point of the power of the keys that Peter and John have? 
Have they been given these keys so that they can glorify themselves? Well, there are times at which they've been guilty of wanting to put themselves above the other disciples of Christ. And Christ, whenever this subject comes up, he always reproves his disciples and says, look, if any of you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you're going to be the servant of all. And so here they are having learned this lesson extremely well, serving everyone. And Simon comes along saying, I want to be great in the kingdom of God. In fact, I'm willing to pay you money because when you guys go, I'm going to be the one around here that everybody comes to to get the the gift of the Holy Ghost, and therefore I will be important. So the, serv- the, the power of God, the priesthood of God, and the service of God exists to serve me. And, and it's this, not only it's, it's not only his attitude, but it's the, it's the proven tendency that he has to follow this exact course in his life that Peter is willing to reprove. And he says, look, if you don't change, you're never going to reach the kingdom of God, you're going you're gonna to have a tough time with God accepting you because your heart is absolutely contrary to the whole way that God works. Now, um, the reason I'm belaboring this point is um, then the, Simon Magus says to Peter, oh, please pray unto God that this won't happen to me. And then that's, that's all we hear about the subject, right? So a lot of times when this kind of, uh, this, this reminds me of the tale of the rich young nobleman who came to Christ and said, what lack I yet? And Jesus told him, take one thing thou lackest, right? You're totally, you've given me your testimony that you're totally righteous and I believe you, but take all of your wealth and give it to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. And he went away sorrowing. And, and then that is just all we get to know. We don't know how the story truly ended up. We want to know, did he ever repent, right? And so the same thing happens here with Simon. He asks to be forgiven. He asks to escape this, this fate that he's been promised if he doesn't change. Now, I don't know whether this is deliberate on the part of Luke or not, but whenever I reach, whenever I read uh, a story like this and I reach the end, then the, the natural thing for me to do is to put myself in the place of that person. So it's it's sort of this hanging question, what happens to that person? Uh, and whenever we don't know what happens to them, then the question is, yeah, what happens to somebody who wants to be forgiven? And then, you know, they had this past where they were comparing themselves to others and wanting to be more important because of their holiness Right? They wanted to have the power of God, and they wanted God to recognize that they were better than their fellow men. And then they were, they were put in their place. They were called to repentance by a priesthood leader, and they asked for forgiveness. They asked to escape that fate that was awaiting them, and, which is to fall short of their reward. And then we don't know what happened. And because we don't know what happened, then the question is for us to answer. The question is to say, well, um, you know, when I'm called to repentance, do I repent immediately in that moment? Can I fix everything that, can I fix a lifetime of building up this rebellious attitude toward God in that moment that I'm called to repentance? No, that's never happened in my life. I know I've been called to repentance, and over the course of time, those words echo through my head, and eventually it humbles me. It, it sinks deep into my heart, as happened with Enos in the Book of Mormon, right? Eventually, he's, he's 
moved enough that he kneels down and he prays and he actually repents. And so that's what hope we hope happens to each of us, and we hope that happens to these these dangling endings, these dangling characters in the scriptures. We hope that they eventually, these words will sink deep into their heart, and we get to decide. We, we carry our lives forward in the same course that they were living in. We find ourselves in them. So I, I explained just now how you could find yourself in someone like this. You've You've lived a life where you've compared yourself to others, and you've been called to repentance. And then, how does this story end? We, we get to answer that, each of us, for Simon Magus. We get, to, we get to say how his story ends by the way in which we live our life. That's one of the powerful effects of reading a story with no ending in the scriptures. I think it's, if, if it was deliberate on the part of Luke, I think it's a brilliant technique. Philip doesn't stop his missionary work in Samaria. He has success of baptizing hundreds of people, but he returns to Jerusalem. And uh, Samaria is to the east and north slightly of Jerusalem. And then he's called to go to Gaza, which is to the south and west. And as he's traveling there, he is alongside this, this chariot that, in which is riding, or maybe a carriage would be a better translation, is riding an Ethiopian. Now, we, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch, the servant of Candace, which is not a name, but a title, the Candace means the queen of Ethiopia, so she's probably, one thing we know about Ethiopia, uh, we don't know exactly where it was, but we know where modern-day Ethiopia was. Ethiopia is an African country with a very, very old Christian tradition, and this man was almost certainly uh, of dark skin, and he represented a Nubian queen. And so not only is he a foreigner, which that foreigners were, were specifically excluded from having the benefits or the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant unless they were willing to go through a painful and difficult and complicated conversion process. And eunuchs were forbidden forever from being, becoming part of the children of Israel. So uh, if, you, if you recall, we've, we've cited one chapter from Isaiah, where Isaiah talks specifically about in the latter days that these um, strangers will have a place within the New Jerusalem. That's in Isaiah 66. And 10 chapters earlier in Isaiah 56, the, these amazing words, the, then strangers and eunuchs will be given a place and a name better than sons and daughters. And so this is to illustrate that, and it's not quoted here but it's sort of hinted at. It's sort of, it's, this passage is reminiscent of this because he sees this eunuch and he runs up to, and, he, and he, he recognizes that the eunuch is reading from Isaiah. And he's, and so the Holy Ghost has led Philip to this point all the way along. It's told him where to go on the journey and it's told him, draw near into that chariot. And he hears him reading from the book of Isaiah and he's reading specifically from Isaiah chapter 53, verses seven through eight, where uh, Isaiah is reading about how, and, and we have this, one of, the, one of the problems with reading this in our translations and even reading it here in the King James translation, um, which is a translation of Isaiah, is that it's not exactly clear what the scripture is saying. It's not as clear to us, this is a better way of saying it, it's not as clear to us as it was to these people reading it at this time. So let's, let's look at a, a couple of different translations. First, let's read what we've heard our whole lives, and let's, then let's read another translation that describes exactly what's going on. 
First of all, we're in Acts now, chapter 8, verse 33. Um, well, well, we'll start in verse 32. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So this is a direct quotation from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. But the Greek, the translation of, from Greek New Testament into English is not exactly the same as the translation from Hebrew into English that we have in the Old Testament. So it's slightly different. Here it says, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And in the Old Testament, it says, he was taken from prison and from judgment. So what does this mean? What is this saying about Jesus Christ? What it's the, I'm going to read you another translation, and we'll, and we'll kind of get the real point in, in a modern English what exactly is going on. This is the Good News translation. He was treated harshly, but endured it humbly. He never said a word. Like a lamb about to be slaughtered, like a sheep about to be sheared, he never said a word. He was arrested and sentenced and led off to die, and no one cared about his fate. He was put to death for the sins of our people. And now let's read the New uh, International Version. We'll read it in a few different translations. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And so the, the idea is that he was humiliated, and his justice was taken from him. In other words, this, this idea of righteousness and justice was denied him because he was humiliated first, and then he was unjustly sentenced. He was humble and innocent, and yet he was made to suffer. It's not a coincidence that Luke has followed the, the martyrdom of Stephen with, the, with these, the account of this foreigner, right? This foreigner and this eunuch reading the book of Isaiah about Christ having, being humiliated and having his justice taken away. This, he's reading exactly what just happened to Stephen and, by extension, what had earlier happened to Jesus Christ. It's Luke driving home the point. Now, when you see repetition in Scripture, especially in, uh, on the, in the Hebrew tradition or in the, New, in the Old or New Testament, you can know that they're employing a Hebrew technique of parallelism, which is to drive home a message by repeating it over and over again, you know, or, or at least the repetitions are close together. So here is uh, this, and it's very subtle. Here is this uh, person who's not a Christian and is not a Jew, who's reading a scripture about Christ that describes exactly what had just happened to Stephen in the previous chapter. And then it is describing Christ from the Old Testament, and Stephen was also drawing parallels between himself and Christ. So powerful and yet so subtle. So as we read it, we're, we're almost unconsciously drawn to tie Stephen to Christ and to feel this wonderful affinity for both of them. And also, we're given a great sense of empathy for this, for this foreigner who he, he wants someone. He says, Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? Except somebody should explain it to me. And, and this shows the love, right? The, the love that God has for all of these people. Now, we, now we're beginning to understand the reason why God has made these fantastic promises, especially in the book of Isaiah, but throughout the Old Testament, uh, 
to all the nations of the earth. We understand that God loves them with this fierce love that will not be denied because he has given the Holy Spirit to Philip, not only to run alongside this chariot, but chariot, but to go on an entire trip just so he can encounter this one person who is probably not ever even coming back to Jerusalem. He's, got a, he's on a long journey home. And they stop and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? I want what you have. You obviously are a messenger sent to me from God and I long to receive what you have. And they stop and, and uh, Philip baptizes him. Um, I want to play a brief excerpt from the, the conference address from this last April from Elder Suarez. He relates this exact account about Philip and the Ethiopian. It's called, How Can I Understand? And he uses this account to, to draw a different conclusion, but it's equally important, and I think it's more than appropriate given that these are the chapters we're studying this week. So here's uh, Ulysses Suarez. The question asked by this Ethiopian man is a reminder of the divine mandate we all have to seek to learn and to teach one another the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the context of learning and teaching the gospel, we are sometimes like the Ethiopian. We need the help of a faithful and inspired teacher. And we are sometimes like Philip. We need to teach and strengthen others in their conversion. Our purpose as we seek to learn and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ must be to increase faith in God and in His divine plan of happiness, and in Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice, and to achieve less conversion. Such increased faith and conversion will help us make and keep covenants with God, thus straightening our desire to follow Jesus and producing a genuine spiritual transformation in us. In other words, transforming us into a new creature, as taught by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians. This transformation will bring us as more, a more happy, productive, and healthy life and help us to maintain an eternal perspective. Isn't this exactly what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch after he learned about the Savior and was converted to, this, to his gospel? The scripture says that he, quote, went on his way rejoicing, close quote. So we can see we're barely scratching the surface of what there is to find in, in these accounts. And we have the most important event yet to discuss, and that is Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. So the first thing that happens is Paul uh, well, we'll just begin right by getting right to the meat of the story, which is Paul is writing to Damascus. He has a letter in his hand from the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem to the leaders of, Jeru- of the Jews in Damascus, which gives Paul power to go around the city hunting out Jews that are now worshiping Christ and delivering them to prison uh, and to death. Now, we know this that Paul didn't just... Let me, put, let me start a little bit earlier. We have an account already that Paul was consenting unto the death of Stephen, but we don't have yet the the testimony that Paul was a direct instrument in the death and the imprisonment of Christians. But Paul tells us this. Luke relates Paul telling us this later on. 
So the language used in this account is that Paul is thrown to the earth by this bright light and the voice that speaks upon speaks unto him, and those that are following him can't see anything in this light. And it's not clear. Sometimes in uh, there are three different accounts. First of all, there's Luke right here giving us Paul's account of his vision. And then Paul later on uh, relates it twice again. So there are three accounts in the book of Acts that talk about Paul's vision. Uh, incidentally, just a side note real quickly here, there are four different accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. And a lot of people make a big deal out of the fact that Joseph Smith chose to emphasize different aspects of or different events during the first vision or leave out certain details in one account and another. And we'll notice that, uh, that Paul did the exact same thing. Most of those people who have a problem with Joseph Smith uh, telling his story slightly differently, they don't have the slightest problem with Paul telling his story slightly differently the three times in which he relates it. Um, and, and to go further with that, uh, here in the King James Version, we have Paul saying, why, Jesus saying, Paul, why per- persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In almost every other translation, you read these verses, and now we're in uh, Acts chapter 9. You read these verses, and it does not include that phrase. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Paul says unto him, Lord, what will you, what will you, what will ye that I should do, right? Or what wilt thou have me to do? That's the title of our lesson, incidentally. And most translations of the Bible of the New Testament do not place that phrase in this verse. The reason is it's only present in one or two ancient manuscripts, and those are not the oldest manuscripts. And usually when this happens, the, the logical conclusion for scholars to draw, and, this, and the conclusion that most scholars have drawn, is that somebody has placed this, it, it's, it's almost unexplainable by any other means, that somebody has placed this phrase in that manuscript alone later on, because otherwise it would be present in more than one place. It seems more reasonable to conclude that it was placed in one manuscript than removed from all of the others simultaneously if that makes sense. Now, does that mean this is not part of this account? No. Uh, later on in verse in chapter 22 of Acts and also in chapter 26 of Acts, Paul relates this story again. And in those accounts, he does use similar language. And one of them, he does say, Jesus said this to me, Paul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So these are the words of Paul and they are the words of Paul describing this very experience. And it seems like later on, somebody who supports the story of Paul and loves the book of Luke wants these two accounts to agree, and so has inserted language from one into the other. So uh, just a little indication of the fact that there are people from the beginning of time that have had a hard time, or not from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the Christian church, they've had a hard time with these accounts of visions not 100% agreeing with each other but they don't fix the problem by trying to make them agree. Uh, it, it should be okay with us. We should recognize that people don't always tell all the same details when they tell a story. So Paul has this experience with Jesus, and uh, what does it mean? Paul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So let's talk about what that means. First of all, kick against the pricks is what a, a beast of burden would do when the pricks are goads or uh some means by which the driver of the cart would use to drive his animal forward. They could either be on the legs or it could be a whip, right? It's, and it's not, it's hard for you to do, meaning it's difficult. It's something, it's a difficult choice that you will make. 
but just change one word and you'll understand what this means. It's hard on you to kick against the pricks. So it is hard for thee to kick against the prince. pricks basically means as you resist my will, this is Jesus talking, as you resist my will, you are only hurting yourself. Now does it make more sense? And now we're going back to what I said we'd get to earlier, which is when Stephen said to the men who were assembled in front of him, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. This is Jesus Christ himself testifying to Paul, I've been reaching out to you, and you're kicking against the pricks, meaning you've been resisting my will. You've been fighting against the Holy Ghost. And this is confirmation of Stephen's testimony about Paul. Now, why would Luke include that? This is not accidental. Um, So I'm going to jump ahead of of the lesson a little bit, and I'm just going to indicate something that happens later on which is that at some point, for for most of the book of Acts, uh, let me go back a little further. The book of Acts starts out as an account of Peter and John and Philip and many of the apostles, including Paul and Saul. Paul, surnamed Paul, uh, who's been renamed from Saul. But then the second half of the book of Acts is almost completely about Paul. So we know from just that fact alone how much Luke cares about the story of Paul. Now around chapter 16... Luke is telling this story about all the apostles in the third person. Around chapter 16, he starts telling it in the second person. When he's telling the story of Paul and the voyages and journeys of Paul, he says, we. So many people, including myself, have made the conclusion that at this point, Luke has been converted. Now, Luke, most people believe that Luke was a Greek convert to Christianity because of the language that he uses, the, the, how good his Greek is, basically. Uh, and so he was never a Jew. That's the conclusion. It's not a hundred percent proven. However, um, after Luke has, or after Paul has made some of his journeys, then Luke starts using the word "we." We went to Corinth. We traveled this road together. So Luke has been converted by Paul and is now one of his missionary companions, and. This shows us, if if this is true, and I believe it is, then this shows us how much Luke loved Paul because Paul has brought him the message of Jesus. And so Luke is trying to do two things. One, he's trying to show uh, that Paul was the, he's trying to show the depth of Paul's service to Christ. And number two, he's trying to show the power of Christ in redeeming somebody as, as lost, as profoundly off track, as Saul was. So he does this by two things. First of all, after his vision, Luke begins referring to the man we knew as Saul. He begins referring to him as Paul. Now, this may be an artificial distinction. It may not. We know from the Old Testament that after an amazing experience or after a demonstration of faith, God would often rename a prophet. He did it with Abraham. He renamed him from Abram to Abraham, uh, exalted father to father of a multitude. He renamed Jacob to Israel. Uh, Jacob is sort of like a trickster, and Israel is he who wrestles with God. He renamed uh, Hoshea to, to Yehoshua, which is Joshua, which is salvation, he renamed him to Jehovah Saves, so Joshua who took over from Moses. 
And there may have been other prophets renamed in the same way, but it was usually God doing the renaming, and it was symbolic that the fact that they had reached uh, a different level in their service to God and the trust that God had in them. So God may have imposed this title on Paul, or more likely, Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Greek name. And this, and in that case, it's a device employed by Luke to place Paul in this same tradition where he's had an experience so powerful that thereafter he's known by a different name. And it may well have been the case. So Paul is then, uh, he's struck blind. He can't see anything. He's led by the hand the last part of his journey into Damascus. And he's unable to pursue his mission there, which is to hunt Christians down. And he's sitting there in this state where uh, he's been accused of persecuting. So, so Jesus says uh, to Paul, uh, what, why persecutest thou me? And he says, who are you? To this voice, to this light. And the light says back, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Uh, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Paul is then led into Damascus. And there's a man there one of the disciples of Christ named Ananias, he knows Paul by reputation. He's afraid of his arrival. And God appears to him in a vision and says, I have a work for you. I need you to go bless this man, Saul, and I need you to uh, help him to see because he can't see right now. And Ananias says, wait, uh, Lord, do you know who that is? Uh, This is the guy who's been chasing us. He's now chasing us across more than one country. He's killed people. Um, and, and the, the, the way I know in which Saul, uh, led people to death is because he actually testified of that. Later on, he says, I was the, the means I I persecuted this, uh, this way unto the death, the binding and delivery into prisons of both men and women. That's in Acts chapter 22 verses four through six. So he says, I, I was, I was the means by which Christians were persecuted unto death. Later on, Paul will testify to this in front of the people who have arrested him in Jerusalem. But for now, uh, we don't know that about Paul yet as we're reading this, the book of Acts. And uh, so, but Ananias knows it, right? And we find it out later. And he's resisting this idea of God. And God says, no, he is going to be a witness of mine. And he's going to bear my name. We're now in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias goes and gives Paul a blessing, and then we see that uh, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized." So then uh, straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. So right away, he is capable of preaching Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, Christ didn't teach him the doctrine of Christianity on that road as far as we can see. Christ told him, you're persecuting me. Stop doing that. And then he's blessed. And then immediately he's able to preach Christ. Now, what do we know about Paul that would lead us to uh, that would that would support this idea. Later on, we find out that Saul was a disciple of Gamaliel. Now, we've seen Gamaliel once before. It was in last week's lesson when Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, and there's a man that comes forward and says, now refrain from these men. 
Because if they are following a man, if Jesus of Nazareth is just a man, if this is man's work that they're about, then we've seen this before, and their preaching will fall apart because their leader is dead. Now, if it's not a man's work, if this work is of God, you can't oppose it. That was Gamaliel that said that, and they accepted that at the time. So Gamaliel was a proud Pharisee and very, very, as we're going to learn the word, zealous on the part of God, uh, zealous toward God. And Saul describes himself later on, he describes himself the same way. In chapter Acts chapter 22, he describes himself as zealous toward God, and we'll examine that phrase. So he learned that from Gamaliel. Now we know about Gamaliel that he's willing to question his assumptions, which is these two men are obviously apostates. Gamaliel says, look, what they're doing, there's an if here. If what they're doing is of God, then we cannot oppose it. And so that that goes right in line with what I said earlier about uh, that interpretation of it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks being an indication that that Saul has been resisting the Holy Ghost. So he's had this idea that he can question his assumptions. Maybe the Christians are right. The Holy Ghost is telling him that they are. Gamaliel has, has already admitted the possibility that it might be of God. And even though he's been working hard to oppose them, uh, he understands the doctrine upon which, if you remember we talked in our special episode about all of the ways in which the Hebrew scriptures support Jesus being the Messiah and Jesus suffering in death. And so all Paul would have to have would be to, to, to hear these scriptures, to have them explained to him, look, these are the scriptures that talk about Jesus. And he'd say, oh, I know those scriptures. I'm, I, and I also know, from, not from the scriptures, but from personal experience, I know that Jesus is real and that he really cares how we act and what we do. And I am willing to humble myself and admit I was wrong, and God has called me to begin preaching that person that I met on the road to Damascus. I want to point out here, uh, this obviously was not intended by Luke, I want to point out here the similarities between Paul and another figure from the Scriptures, and that's Alma the Younger. Their, their tales parallel each other in so many ways that I think it's worth pointing out. First of all, um, we have from Acts 22, again, from Acts 22, later on, Paul is giving an account of his persecutions. He, his, he's actually trying to destroy the church of God. So we have in Alma 36, verse 6, Alma's describing his actions to his son. He says, I went about with the sons of Mosiah seeking to destroy the church of God. Paul in Acts 22 says, I persecuted this way unto the death binding and delivery into prisons of both men and women. And then, um, and then Alma says, as I went about, and, and Paul says, as I made my journey, right? So while, while I'm in the motion of persecuting people, then uh, Paul is asked the question, why persecutest thou me? And the angel asks Alma a similar question, why are you, why are you persecuting, why are you seeking to destroy the church of God? So that's the, that's the experience. And then if accompanying 
the experience of Alma is a cloud, right? This, this light, the voice of thunder, the earth is shaking. If you read this carefully, if you read the Alma, cha- or the, the experience of Alma is found in Mosiah chapter 27. If you read that carefully, it never says that he's unconscious. Um, and in my mind, I realized I'd always conflated the experience of Alma, the younger, with the experience of King Lamoni, who does actually fall senseless to the earth when uh, he's preached to by, um, by Ammon. And later his father has a similar experience. And so I'd always just thought, oh yeah, and also Alma the Younger, was he, he fell senseless to the earth. But what it actually says was it, he was dumb so that he could not speak, and his, and his limbs, he could not move them. And so now I'm imagining Alma falling to the ground, and his eyes are open, he's looking around, and he's opening his mouth and trying to speak, and everyone's, but they, so they can see he's alive. They don't ever say, we think he's dead. Um, and he may well have been unconscious, because he later talks about this, this uh, imaginings that he has of, uh, he's, he's tortured by the pains of hell, right? But Anyway, it doesn't say he's unconscious, and I think that's that's uh, significant now, looking at the parallels between Paul and Alma the Younger, because Paul is also not unconscious. He just doesn't have the full use of his body. It's been taken from him. One of his senses has been taken away, and it requires the intervention of priesthood power. Now, in the case of Paul, he's in Damascus, and Ananias is is. Uh, inspired to seek him out. In the case of Alma the Younger, he's carried to his father's house, and his father assembles the church around him, and they pray for him for three days. Uh, But so many parallels there. And then they both have these admiring biographers. In the case of Paul, he has Luke, who was one of his missionary companions. In the case of Alma, he has Mormon, centuries later, but who is distilling his record and preserving his letters and his testimonies about his own sins, the way that Luke does for Paul. He's testifying about how wicked he was and how horrible it was, and describing what he did as I murdered the people that I had murdered. In the case of Alma, he says, you know, I'd murdered many of God's children, or in other words, I had taken them away from the truth. Um, in, the, in the course of their journeys, they both take on converts of theirs as their missionary companions. And they're both threatened with death and put on trial and locked in prison and then freed miraculously. And, and they both witness the persecution and destruction of their converts. So the, the, and these are not, they don't come, I think the interesting thing is not, I think most people who are Joseph Smith's detractors would say, yeah, obviously Joseph Smith had the book of Acts to draw from when he, when he wrote about Alma. But these are not put in the same order, and they're very subtle, right? These similarities, they have to be looked for. They're buried in the text. They're not just right out there on display. To me, it seems like a fantastic evidence of the the glory of God, and it's also evidence of how difficult it would have been for Joseph Smith to construct the Book of Mormon because all of these fantastic parallels, the way that Stephen drew the parallels between himself and Christ, it's that subtle the parallels between Alma the Younger and Paul. And it shows that God has chosen a similar instrument on both sides of the sea, one in the old world, one in the new, one 90 years before Christ and one just a few years after the death of Christ, and both bearing witness to Christ with their lives in the same way. Uh, So 
Paul describes himself as consenting unto Stephen's death. And Luke has put that in there to show that Paul was humble about the fact that he had been persecuting the Christians. Paul recognized how lost he was. Um, I want to draw your attention to a couple of Paul's epistles. One is, um, oh, there's a, this is really important. There's one um, parallel that I didn't draw, that I didn't draw attention to between Stephen and Christ. Stephen is about to die, and he says, "Lay not this sin to their charge." The way Christ had said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And then he says, uh, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." The way that Jesus said, "Into thy hands I commend my spirit." Uh, there's a reason that Luke is doing this. Number one, when he says, lay not this sin to their charge, who do we know? There's only one named character that we know of that was in that room who, whose sin this might be, this charge might be laid, whose charge this sin might be laid to, and that is Saul. And later on, we learn that God did not lay this sin to his charge. Nevertheless, Stephen is then stoned, right? This is murder. This is a lynch mob. And the witnesses were the people that the way that stoning worked was uh, they first took the person to be executed and the witnesses were the people who did this. If you testified against somebody that they had committed blasphemy, then you were the person to do this. The first witness would push the convicted from a tower or into a hole that was twice the height of a man. So very likely their hands were bound and this fall was, it was hoped that this fall would kill them. They were, they tried to push them onto their face or onto their head, right? So that their neck would be broken or their head would be crushed in the fall. This was the way stoning worked. And then if that didn't kill them, then a stone was dropped on them, a large stone, a stone maybe 30, 40, or even 50 pounds would be, would be launched at them. And they'd try to crush their head with this first stone. And if that didn't work, then everyone else would join in. The first witness did the pushing. The second witness dropped the large stone. This is how stoning worked. So it could be a quick death, and it could also be a very tortured and painful death taking, taking hours. Um, and Stephen suffered this death, and he said, lay not this to their charge. Later on, Paul, and we'll, we'll study this chapter later, and we'll talk about this again. Paul was stoned and left for dead, and he survived. And so Jesus says to Ananias, I will show him how great things he must suffer in my name. Meaning he's going to make amends for what he has done. He's going to do what Alma did. He's going to suffer by seeing people suffer that he loves. He's going to see his convert suffer and he's going to suffer himself, both body and spirit, because that is how he's going to understand what I went through when he tortured and, and persecuted my converts, my children. So that's a powerful witness of the Book of Mormon, I think, in the story of Paul. It's also, uh, so back to the things that Luke did intend, right? Uh, Luke intended to put the account of Stephen together with the account of Paul to show that, uh, that Stephen was testifying, number one, of the powerful change that could come upon the heart of someone who has accepted Jesus Christ. Um, and when, he, when Stephen says, lay not this sin to their charge, he's speaking from, from our storytelling perspective, right? Not from a spiritual perspective, but from the, from the narrative 
He's speaking of Saul. He's foreshadowing the fact that Saul will eventually have his sins forgiven him. And as we learn about the character of Saul, he becomes Paul. This powerful transformation takes over. He is the lowest of the low. And incidentally, this was not a pleasant vision he had of Jesus Christ. This would have been an overwhelmingly traumatic. We know this from the story of Alma the Younger. He described it in detail. This was a traumatic vision. Why? You meet God, the person who you would think you've, you've wanted to meet your whole life. And instead of saying, you're my child, I love you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He says, why are you persecuting me? You're hurting yourself when you resist my will. What a terrible uh, uh, encounter to have with your God, to have God be angry with you and threaten you with vengeance and with retribution. And this is the experience that Paul had. It was not pleasant. And he spent the rest of his life trying to, to make up for that because of, of and, then, and then you're blinded, right? You can only, uh, on the one hand, you can see the glory of God and you can only see the glory of God. And on the other hand, you know how disappointed God is in your choices. And so Paul took this zeal we're going to talk about zeal right now, and then we're going to finish. Paul took this zeal that he had for God, and he was then able to take it and apply it on behalf of Christ. And so this is the testimony of Luke, that no matter how low you are, that God's grace can find you and transform you, and you can be from the lowest to the highest, just like Paul was. And it's, it's suffering right? It's, it's the outreach of God and the willingness of God to put you through the ringer that makes it happen. So let's talk about what it means to be zealous toward God. We have in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 25, I believe, or uh, it's either 25, 13 or 13, 25. Um, we have in the book of Numbers an account of the prophet Balaam, and Balaam has been hired by Balak, one of the enemies of Israel, to curse them. But then he blesses them, right? If you remember this story, we went over this in the Old Testament. And then uh, at the end of the time, you know, Balak is really angry with Balaam. He said, I know you were a prophet, but I asked you here, I would have given you a lot of glory if you'd just been willing to curse the Israelites. And Balaam says, look, I can't, I am a prophet. I can't tell you anything but that which God tells me. But... And then Balaam adds this, but if you want to know how to bring down the Israelites, here's how. Send your women in and seduce them because it's one of their commandments that they can't, their, their men cannot join with your women. Uh, one of the most more disgraceful uh, acts of a prophet in the Old Testament. And as a result, right in front of, uh, so it's a commandment to the, to the men of Israel. They can't join with the Midianites. And right in front of Moses and all the elders of the people, one of the Israelites brings in this Midianite woman and takes her to his tent. And then Phinehas, one of the sons of Aaron, takes a javelin, and, and the, the penalty for this is death. And Phinehas takes one of these, takes a javelin, goes into the tent, and spears them both through. And because of this, he's rewarded and praised by God. And then he's described as zealous toward God, the same phrase that Paul uses to describe himself. So uh, zeal or zealot is associated with the willingness to employ violence on behalf of God throughout the scriptures. So later on, Saul the king, King Saul, is described as zealous as he goes to war. And Jesus has another Simon as one of his disciples who's called Simon Zelotes or Simon the Zealot. And it's because before he joined with Jesus, he was very militant on behalf of Israel against Rome. He was in favor of armed revolution now. And that's the implication 
uh, of his surname, Zelotes. Simon the Zealot is somebody who would have been in favor of armed revolution immediately. So Saul, that, that, that's what Saul was. He describes himself, I was very, very zealous toward God. That's why he was willing. He thought what he was doing was driving uh, this javelin through the, the reason, the person who was the reason that Israel was being punished. Israel had a plague, right, that had come upon them by which 25,000 people died. And when Phinehas did this, they were cured of their plague. So he was the deliverer of Israel by, by being willing to employ violence and, and uh, also to inflict capital punishment for someone who is transgressing the laws of God. So Paul had cast himself in this role, and Christ showed him that that was not his place. So he, th- he was zealous toward God. Now, in the, in the first chapter of Romans, at the end of the chapter, Paul, Paul takes this whole chapter to, to describe the, um, the acts that people commit that are worthy of death. And then at the very end of the chapter, and I believe it's verse 32, Paul says, uh, not only were they willing to perform these acts that, that were worthy of death, and they knew they were worthy of death themselves, but they wanted to encourage other people to do it. And this seems to me to be almost reminiscent, right, of, uh, of Paul's feeling about himself as he was consenting unto the death of Stephen. Now, Romans was one of the last epistles that Paul wrote, even though it appears next after the book of Acts. And so he's had a lifetime to reflect on how he felt. And he's, he doesn't describe the sin of persecuting Christians. He describes the sin of you know, various moral sins. And then at the end, he says, the people who, who committed these sins, they knew that what they were doing was worthy of death. And they were not only willing to perform those sins themselves, but were willing to approve of others and encourage others in committing those sins. And this is Paul calling Saul, his earlier self, to repentance. As Luke is showing us that God has undergone, has, God has effected this transformation on somebody who was one of his detractors and who will now be one of his servants. And in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, God appeared to to many. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to all the apostles. And then he appeared to over 500 people at once. And last of all, he appeared to me. I'm the least of anyone who could be called a witness of Christ, but it's the grace of God that I would be. And that's really the lesson, right? This is the lesson that that Paul would have taught Luke and that Luke is trying to convey to us in in Acts chapters 6 through 9. He's conveying the idea that the the history of God is continuing, is constantly continuing, that there's this ancient history of the prophets on one side and the people on the other. And all the prophets want is for the people to execute righteousness and justice. And on the other hand, the people are saying, no, we're not willing to be obedient. That continued through Christ, but it also continued after Christ. It continued in the person of Stephen. And as we see in uh, in this, inter, this uh, episode with Peter and Tabitha, which is also in these chapters, Peter raises this woman who's a faithful follower of this new sect of Christians. He raises her from the dead, just the way Christ did. She'd been sitting there for some time until Peter could get there, just the way Lazarus was. And Peter arrives and raises her from the dead by calling her, commanding her to come forth. And, and then they all come in and rejoice. So the, the, the authority, the miracles, 
the the teachings they've all continued and it's and it's important it's as important for us to pay attention to the Holy Ghost and to the prophets in our day as it was for the people who knew Jesus and for the people who knew Isaiah, for that matter, who knew Moses, to listen to the prophets in their day. This is a powerful testimony from Luke that revelation is ongoing in all ages of the world. This is a, this is a lesson that has been lost to most of Christianity, but it's so obvious in the text. And secondly, the power of Christ to transform us no matter how bad we think we are and no matter how bad we think our experience with Christ is, you know, Paul was shaken to the earth and he was made blind and he probably felt awful the way that Alma the Younger felt awful. He was facing the fires of hell and contemplating an eternity of suffering. And then, as Alma describes, he called out to Christ and said, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me who am in the gall of bitterness. And then his joy was as great as had been his pain. And I imagine that Paul had a similar experience. And as just as Alma was able to immediately leap up and to testify of the mercies of Christ, that very weekend, Paul was already teaching about Christ and talking about how Jesus was risen from the dead. So we find ourselves in those people who were willing to listen to Stephen. We find ourselves in the person of Paul. We find ourselves in the person of Simon Magus, who had the wrong attitude toward God and was called out for it, and then we don't know what happened to them. In each of these accounts, we can find an object lesson for us, that we look to Christ in all things, we're willing to humble ourselves before God, and as Peter, as uh, Stephen said, uh, you resist the Holy Ghost. That was one of their biggest sins. We find as we stop resisting the Holy Ghost that it is no longer hard on us to kick against the pricks, but that God will lead us by the hand and forgive our sins. What he was saying to to Paul was, I'm glad you're zealous. I'm glad you're zealous toward God. But this zeal that in the past has taken the form of you being willing to commit violence, you being willing to go to war physically, literal war for God, should now be replaced by zeal toward God now means that you are willing to forgive others and to forgive yourself. That is the kind of zeal I want toward God. You're willing to work the rest of your life to understand Jesus and to believe his forgiveness and teach it to as many people as you can with your words and with your example. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.